Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. I've got no strings to hold me down, to make me fret or make me frown. I had strings, but now I'm free. There are no strings on me. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 98, Avengers Age of Ultron. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Firstly, thank you so much for being here for another Avengers movie. I mean, I'm not going to insult your intelligence. You know what's next. I don't need to tell you. And I've been wanting to cover the Avengers movies for so long. And, uh, and not only are they here, so are you. And uh, whether you're a returning listener, a long-time listener, or a brand new listener, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Thank you so much for all your support. And also, you know, I get so much super positive feedback and comments on episodes that I do, uh, like recently on the Monster Squad. And just a massive thank you for those, because I really do love doing what I do. And it's always really nice when people say nice things about something that you love doing. But... I'm not going to dwell because I'm going to jump straight into this first Avengers sequel because Age of Ultron is a little bit of a rare anomaly in the Avengers lineup. It's the lowest grossing financially, although not by much, I mean it's hardly a failure, as well as the lowest critically received, uh, although it's not widely disliked. Most people actually do kind of like this movie. Mostly I think people see Age of Ultron and just see a movie that's okay but that failed to light their expectations and expectations were high after the avengers age of ultron is a little bit like the middle child of the family it's not the amazing eldest which was born in 2012 and it's also not the sort of youngest twins ish twins yeah i suppose you could call them twins it is essentially a two-parter obviously coming out in 2018 and 2019 it is kind of the odd middle child. Got a bit of middle child syndrome going on this movie. But I truly believe that Age of Ultron is a movie that A, bears repeat viewings, and B, 
post one division and specifically infinity war and endgame actually holds up a lot better than before those entries in the mcu the seeds were there in this movie and you know just on a by note for steve rogers if he is listening to this podcast he'll be pleased to know that this is a clean language podcast so there will be no swears and nothing that he needs to get too upset about anyway here is the trailer for Avengers Age of Ultron. I was designed to save the world. People who look to the sky and see hope. I'll take that from them first. There's only one path to peace. There are extinction. I tried to create a suit of armor around the world. But I created something terrible. Artificial intelligence. It's called the Ultron program. I'm sick of watching people pay for our mistakes isn't why we fight so we can end the fight and go home well you amazingly failed <laughs> here we all are With nothing but our wit and our will to save the world so stand and fight no way we all get through this i got no plans tomorrow night I'm always picking up after you, boys. We can tear them apart. From the inside. That's the best you can do! <laughs> you had to ask. successful raid on a Hydra base, Tony Stark and Bruce Banner create an artificial intelligence called Ultron, a peacekeeping protocol designed to help the Avengers protect the world from their enemies. But things go wrong when Ultron sees the human race as a threat and sets out to destroy it along with the Avengers. Now the Avengers must reassemble to stop Ultron from causing mass destruction. And that is a very simplistic synopsis. Uh, but to be honest, I've got so much to talk about with this movie that I really just kind of want to get into it. And we're going to start with the cast. Obviously, a lot of returning cast members from the last movie to this one. We have Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, aka Iron Man. Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner, aka Hulk. Chris Evans as Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America. Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow. Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye. Don Cheadle as James Rhodey Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine. Aaron Taylor-Johnson as Pietro Maximoff. Elizabeth Olsen as Wanda Maximoff. Paul Bettany as Jarvis and Vision. Kobe Smulders as Maria Hill. Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson, aka Falcon, Hayley Atwell as Peggy Carter, Idris Elba as Heimdall, Stellan Skarsgård as Eric Selvig, 
James Spader as Ultron, Linda Cardellini as Laura Barton, Claudia Kim as Helen Cho, Andy Serkis as Ulysses Claw, and Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. And that is, <laughs> that is a huge cast. And that is just the main players. Uh, so interestingly for this movie, there was a change in billing order between this movie and the last Avengers movie. Obviously, Robert Downey Jr. always co gets top billing, but the Chris's actually switched because Chris Evans moves from second build in the Avengers to fourth build in Age of Ultron, essentially switching with Chris Hemsworth, who goes from fourth build for the Avengers to second build for Age of Ultron. And part of me wonders whether that was some sort of compensation for Chris Hemsworth because he is the Avenger that has the least amount of screen time in this movie. Fun fact for you there. So anyway, I digress. The movie was written and directed by Joss Whedon and it was obviously based on Avengers by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. So before The Avengers was released in October 2011, Kevin Feige set out the plan for phase two of the MCU. It would start with Iron Man 3, as I mentioned in the last episode, the last to come from the agreement with Paramount and as with phase one, it would culminate in a second Avengers movie. So as I said before, the Avengers was released in 2012 to great critical acclaim and huge financial gains at the box office. It was very clear that a second Avengers movie would come. The main question would ultimately be, would Joss Whedon return? He would confirm his return in August 2012, as well as an agreement to work on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for Marvel Television. At the time, all of the principal cast members were contracted to return for Age of Ultron, except for Robert Downey Jr., whose four-movie contract had expired with Iron Man 3. Along with enticing Whedon back, which admittedly wasn't hard to do, Marvel also had to persuade Robert Downey Jr. to return. And while these negotiations were happening, Robert Downey Jr.'s presence in the film was as yet unknown, Joss Whedon started writing an outline where he specifically wanted to take the film along a different tone to its predecessor. He wanted a smaller scale movie, something more personal and more painful. He cited The Empire Strikes Back and The Godfather Part Two as inspiration. Even Captain Marvel appeared in an early draft. However, she was swiftly removed as obviously Brie Larson was quite a way off being cast in the role. Spider-Man also appeared in this draft, but obviously there was no deal with Sony at that time. Captain Marvel's role would ultimately go to Wanda Maximoff, who's not called Scarlet Witch at all in this movie, but I want to talk about the Maximoffs specifically a little bit later. Obviously, I don't think I need to tell you, but obviously Robert Downey Jr. did sign back uh, in the summer of 2013, renegotiating his deal with Marvel Studios that included a second and third Avengers movie a deal that would be reworked again by the time of Captain America Civil War. With Tony Stark definitely included, this meant that Whedon could continue with his script, which would include the robot Ultron. But instead of the comic series, Tony Stark would be responsible for Ultron's creation instead of Hank Pym. Uh, and obviously Pym, as a character, wouldn't appear until 2015's Ant-Man. So let's just go into the history of Ultron as a character. So Ultron was created by writer Roy Thomas and artist John Buscema. He first appeared in The Avengers number 54 in July 1968 as a non-named cameo. His first named appearance was in August 1968 in issue 55. He is identified as Ultron 5, the living automaton. 
And in the following issue, it details how Ultron created Vision using Wonder Man's brain patterns to destroy the Avengers. Further flashbacks reveal that Ultron was created by Hank Pym, the original Ant-Man, based on Pym's brain patterns, where the robot became sentient and rebelled against Pym's programming. It developed an immediate Oedipus complex, feeling irrational hatred for Hank, his father figure, but taking an interest in Janet Van Dyne, Hank's wife. Ultron rebuilds himself, upgrades himself, and then brainwashes Hank Pym into forgetting Ultron ever existed. The next incarnation of Ultron, Ultron 6, was made with adamantium, the fictional metal used to bond Wolverine's skeleton, and obviously at the point of making this movie, adamantium was owned by Fox. This was the first ever appearance of adamantium in Marvel Comics and would make Ultron almost indestructible and would again plan to destroy the Avengers as well as humanity in general. But obviously the Avengers foil his evil plans. Ultron would continue to sequentially turn up in Avengers stories in the 70s, 80s and through into the 2010s. The actual Age of Ultron story released in 2013 involved Ultron's conquest of the Earth it was a 10-issue core miniseries published between March and June 2013, written by Brian Michael Bendis, with several tie-in stories. Age of Ultron, the movie, is not at all based on this miniseries, the only similarity being that Ultron literally drives the Avengers underground in both pieces. Otherwise, Age of Ultron, the movie, literally just borrows the title Age of Ultron, only because it's a cool title. They wanted a title that was something of Ultron, and they just chose Age of Ultron because it sounded cool. Before Age of Ultron was announced, the movie I mean, uh, and in line with the post-credit tease in The Avengers, many assumed that Thanos would be the villain of the second Avengers movie. But as I mentioned last episode on The Avengers, Thanos was originally only ever conceived as a little nod to comic book fans, more of a brief cameo and nothing more. Joss Whedon later commented that Thanos was never meant to be the next villain and that Thanos had always been the overlord of villainy and darkness. And obviously Thanos will come into play in an episode very, very soon. So this particular version of Age of Ultron would be a father-son story or more adequately a creator-creation tale whilst retaining the technological aspect, the very basis of the Iron Man stories and would rely on more of a horror element in the vein of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But more on that a little bit later too, because well, that's one of the reasons why I find this movie so fascinating. So with all the principal cast returning, Joss Whedon had to cast Ultron and hired James Spader in August 2013. James Spader was the only choice for the role, mainly because of his hypnotic voice. Originally, James Spader was just going to voice the role. However, he wanted to immerse himself in all of the facets of Ultron, all eight or nine foot of him, and lobbied the filmmakers to allow him to also perform motion capture for Ultron. And this is from the very first moment that we see the character after the party all the way through to full Ultron. I mentioned last episode that Joss Whedon had always wanted to introduce new Avengers to the team. He didn't just want to introduce them for the sake of it, but wanted to show new powers, new abilities on screen, as well as add additional conflict for the Avengers to deal with new people with different abilities. Whedon ultimately chose the characters of Pietro and Wanda Maximoff, aka Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, although like I say, they're not actually called that in the movie, and announced the casting of Aaron Taylor-Johnson and Elizabeth Olsen in October 2013. And since their creation by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in 1964, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch 
have been an important feature in Marvel's universe. Both are founding members of the Brotherhood of Mutants, and a year after their debut, they became Avengers. And then, obviously, there's the rights issue. The Ultron in the room, so to speak. There is an issue with rights, because it's no secret that there are two Pietros, or Peters, while the division of cinematic rights between Marvel Studios and Fox was, at the time, tricky, it's not now, obviously, because Disney owns Fox, but it boils down to the fact that both characters were both X-Men and Avengers. Unlike a character like Wolverine, for example, who would occasionally pop up in Avengers comics, and he did, actually, in the Age of Ultron run, but he was never technically an Avenger until New Avengers number 6 in 2005, this was obviously after his cinematic Fox debut in 2000. Anyway, so Marvel and Fox agreed to share the characters of Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, with the deal stating that Marvel could not reference them as mutants, nor could they be called the children of Magneto, as canonically they were. Fox, meanwhile, could not mention that they were Avengers, which sounds fair. So while Marvel Studios were casting their Quicksilver, Fox were also casting their Quicksilver to feature in 2014's X-Men Days of Future Past. While both studios were keen to use Quicksilver, only Marvel optioned to use Scarlet Witch. Fox's Quicksilver did have a sister, but director Brian Singer insisted that she was not Wanda. Most importantly for Marvel Studios, though, although Days of Future Past was released a year before Age of Ultron, their Quicksilver as in Pietro Maximoff, had appeared in the post-credit sequence of Captain America the Winter Soldier and been revealed as being experiments by Baron Strucker and Hydra you can use using Loki's scepter from the Avengers. So Marvel Studios basically got in there first with their version of Quicksilver. And it goes without saying as well that the Quicksilver rights issue would actually be fully resolved by the end of Age of Ultron because, as Joss Whedon likes to do, uh, and despite many outlets at the time thinking that either Tony Stark or Steve Rogers or Clint Barton would die in Age of Ultron, it was ultimately the end for Aaron Taylor Johnson's Pietro, uh, which is actually a remarkable change for a male character to get fridged to further a female character's story. But more on Wanda and her arc in another episode. And by another episode, I mean uh, a special episode on WandaVision that I'm doing because I'm going to be talking more about Wanda in that episode specifically. As development continued on Age of Ultron, so did Joss Whedon's involvement with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., with Whedon eff effectively splitting his duties on both. And this is something that he's not been shy of doing in the past. He split time between Buffy and Angel and Firefly at one point. Speaking of which, I did mention last episode about why Joss Whedon is particularly garbage. I'm not going to go through all of that again. I have to talk about him because he made the movie. That doesn't mean I think he's a good person. In fact, he's, he's not. He's a controlling abusive scumbag. It's important to note that he wasn't on these movies or there are no reports of him being abusive or harassing on these movies because well you know like I said last time bullies only bully when they're in positions of power and clearly he was not in a position of power up against the likes of Robert Downey Jr. Filming for Avengers Age of Ultron would begin in Johannesburg, South Africa, would then move to Shepperton Studios in the UK and then to Fort Bard, Italy which doubled as Sokovia and then in Seoul, South Korea. 
Dover Castle in Kent was used for the interiors of Strucker's Hydra base, and Whedon really was burning the candle at both ends. Age of Ultron was a demanding shoot, and instead of carefully planning shots like he did for the Avengers, instead he used multiple cameras to get different angles and just chose the best ones. He wanted to go more documentary style. He used long lenses. He wanted the experience of Age of Ultron to be a completely different cinematic experience. Cinematographer Ben Davis, who also worked on Guardians of the Galaxy, shot the first unit with three Ari Alexa cameras. Second unit was shot using Blackmagic Design's pocket cinema cameras. Production wrapped in August 2014, but the edit would prove problematic for Joss Whedon. At the time, the over 3,000 visual effects shots were the most for any Marvel movie up to that point, surpassing Guardians of the Galaxy by over 250 shots. Effects were achieved by Industrial Light and Magic, Trickster, Double Negative, Animal Logic, Lola VFX, Luma Pictures, The Third Floor, many of whom who'd worked on The Avengers too. ILM even opened a new facility in London, citing Age of Ultron as the reason for the expansion. They also created a brand new motion capture system called Muse, which captures the actor performing and can also combine multiple takes. Andy Serkis, who played Ulysses Claw, contributed to the research and design of Muse, having obviously extensive experience of playing motion capture characters like Gollum and Caesar. Muse meant that they could now capture facial and bodily movements simultaneously, which was something that they couldn't do before. Back to the edit of this movie, because Wanda's nightmarish visions uh, that she plants into the Avengers, they actually proved to be a bit of a bone of contention for Joss Whedon. He wanted to focus on character-centric scenes, like at the Barton Farm, and the visions. But for Marvel, they obviously wanted to build this Marvel Cinematic Universe continuity. And to do that... They needed Thor to go off to a cave and find out more about the Infinity Stones. Joss Whedon didn't want scenes of Thor in a cave, and he admitted that the situation between him and executives became unpleasant. Whedon admitted he felt like the farm scenes were being held hostage, and that he had no choice but to include the cave scenes for Marvel, which is probably why they feel really stilted and weird. The original cut of the movie included a scene where Thor would be possessed by the Norn in the cave and Eric Selvig would ask the questions and the Norn, speaking through Thor, would answer them. Test audiences, however, didn't like the scene and so it was scrapped for Thor having a dip in the cave pool and all of a sudden realising about this linked universe and these Infinity Stones. In the process of bringing the film down from its original three-hour length, the pressure got to Joss Whedon. He started to chop scenes of Pietro Wanda, as well as a more detailed backstory on Black Widow. Scarlett Johansson was pregnant during filming and a mix of close-up shots, stunt doubles, visual effects and concealing costumes were used to hide her pregnancy because, as we find out in this movie, Natasha has been forcibly sterilised as part of her Black Widow training in a so-called graduation ceremony. And how the movie handles Natasha has always felt wrong. It's never the fact that she was sterilised, nor that she feels regret for it. It's the fact that the movie lets Natasha label herself as a monster. Not based on her past as an assassin, although you could argue it's the context of the discussion and the relationship with Bruce, which 
I'd actually don't mind all that much, despite it completely coming out of nowhere, because as I said last episode, I am a big fan of Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner. It's clear that her inability to provide children for Bruce in the future is why she's labelling herself a monster, or at least that's how it comes across. And you kind of have to ask, well, where was her desire to wipe out the red in her ledger from the previous movie? Why is she being reduced to a love interest? I mean, again, I really like Bruce, but come on. Her backstory with the Red Room was so interesting. It's something that I really want to know more about. I want to know how she got recruited, why and how she was made to do what she did. What exactly was she made to do? But you're telling me, out of all of her regrets, killing innocent people, being forced to become a spy from an early age, pales in comparison to losing out on motherhood. Add this to her new skill of giving lullabies to Hulk to turn him into Bruce again. And the off-screen pregnancy Scarlett Johansson is experiencing seems to have leaked into the movie. And it's annoying because it overshadows everything great that Natasha achieves in this movie. The fact that she is the cool aunt of this other family that no one knew about. And I have to say as well, her inability to have children does not make her incomplete. It does not make her less of a woman or less deserving of love. And I think that's a really important thing to say. And it's actually a really perfect sort of awkward segue into the central themes of this movie. The central theme of creation. Joss Whedon admitted to tapping into Dawley's 1910 silent adaptation of Frankenstein for this movie. Tony Stark has a vision of a future where his friends are dead. A future where they lose, which isn't untrue, actually, if you look forward into Infinity War. And so, in his paranoid, anxious state, he decides the only way to avert this future is to create something that will protect the Earth. Tony has always been a flawed, selfish character. He's tripping to outer space and the resulting PTSD corrupts him in a way that he believes that he's right. Whedon spent a lot of time trying to still frame Tony as the hero of the story, but really, he's the villain. He creates Ultron, and Ultron immediately asks why he's here and what this world is. A bit like Frankenstein's monster, you know, it's a world that's hostile and unfriendly to him. Ultron sees humanity as a disease, which let's be honest, we kind of are. Tony Stark, surrounded by gods, both literal and figurative, wants to be a god too. But he does it out of narcissism rather than a selfless act. In many ways, the first Avengers movie is the team coming together. And this is the team realising that they are gods and monsters. Ultron, as the child of Tony Stark, is essentially there to supplant him. And I really do feel that Tony Stark really does think that he's doing the right thing. And this is one of the reasons why I think Age of Ultron ultimately does hold up as a horror-adjacent movie about man creating monsters and monsters creating more monsters. I'm talking about Ultron's robot army. A bit like zombies, actually. They move quite zombie-like. There's even more Frankenstein imagery of Thor zapping the cradle with lightning to give Vision, the creation of the creation, life. And Vision is perfectly pitched as the anti-Ultron, wanting peace but not wanting destruction. And the movie needs to tell us immediately if Vision is trustworthy. And let's not forget, Vision lifted Mjolnir before Cap did. This is a really simple and perfectly plotted scene. It tells us everything we need to know about Vision. And retrospectively, post-WandaVision, the closeness between Vision and Wanda is hinted at several times in this movie. The gods and monsters theme actually really does work well. And I really do love the Frankenstein imagery. But... The movie just shows Natasha just a deep, huge disservice. All they needed to do 
was take the monster away from her fertility and into her deep regret at her assassin past because she is a monster for that. She has done some terrible things in her past. We don't know too much about them, but she's hinted at this red in her ledger. And it's really frustrating that they treat her like this when other movies like Winter Soldier, for example, seem to get her so right. I mean, of course, there's much more to lament in Natasha's arc in general. That is for a future episode. And it's just such a huge irony there because of Scarlett Johansson's real life pregnancy. And it's just something that I really did feel like I needed to talk about because it, it really, really frustrates me about this movie in particular. I get why they wanted to have Natasha feel like a monster. I understand that. If you're talking about a theme of gods and monsters, she's there with Bruce. Bruce feels like a monster. She had to also feel the same to have that link with Bruce. I get that completely. But no, don't bring a woman's fertility into it. That's just not on Joss Whedon. It's just not. Anyway, as I said, this is a movie that has really deep, interesting themes. It clearly wants to be completely different to the movie that preceded it. One of the things that it does want to do is it wants a huge battle scene. And it's really a shame, actually, that the battle in Sokovia never seems to quite hit the high heights of the Battle of New York. One thing Sokovia does do, it acknowledges the rampant destruction of these battles and at least attempts to save as many citizens as possible. And this is something that the original Avengers movie, with its giant leviathans floating through streets, smashing buildings and falling on, as they died, presumably killing thousands of New York citizens, at least collateral damage is avoided in Age of Ultron. This is, this is despite the Sokovian city literally falling from the sky, smashing into pieces. Joss Whedon clearly had great intentions to build on this world and the characters that he'd so deftly managed in The Avengers, but also to deliver something different. You could never accuse Age of Ultron of being just a copy of The Avengers. It is ambitious and striking and interesting. Retrospectively, it works better in the cinematic canon now than it did back then. Maybe Joss Whedon was onto something with that. Since he never returned to the franchise and has now been shunned post-Justice League for his bullying and harassing behaviour to cast members, it's probably something we'll never know. But ultimately, like I said before, Joss Whedon really has kind of set up the MCU phases one to three when he introduced Thanos at the end of Avengers. It was just a throwaway thing, but they have built on it. And obviously, as we're going to come to in future episodes, we're going to talk more about Thanos and about why he so desperately wants to get rid of everyone. But anyway, let's move on. Let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And it's always tough with Avengers movies, or Marvel movies, actually, I should say, in particular, because Keanu's never been in any of them. So I've mentioned in the past on Marvel movies, clickbait links where Keanu's been linked to certain roles that have never materialised. But I actually found a really interesting link with Keanu and James Spader, who plays Ultron. So Keanu and James Spader, they starred together in the 2000 movie The Watcher, which apparently Keanu was forced to star in after a then friend forged his signature on the contract. I am not lying about this either. You kind of have to ask what sort of friend would do that. 
Anyway, rather than go through the legal channels to absolve his responsibility to star in the movie, and because he was unable to prove the forgery, he went ahead with the role. He also agreed to work for Scale, unlike his co-stars James Spader and Marissa Tomei. Keanu would eventually receive an additional $2 million for his work on the movie. That is a genuine, real, true-life story. Keanu was forced to work on this movie with James Spader. I just thought it was really interesting. <laughs> so the music for Avengers Age of Ultron, obviously Alan Silvestri did the theme for the Avengers, did the score for the Avengers. He doesn't return for Avengers Age of Ultron. His Avengers theme is retained, but the rest of the score is by Brian Tyler, along with a reworked hybrid version of Sylvester's Avengers theme by Danny Elfman. And one of the highlights of this movie, particularly in the trailer, is the reworked version of I've Got No Strings from the movie Pinocchio, which is incredibly haunting and kind of beautiful in a weird way, which I really, really like, actually. <laughs> That's the sort of reworked song that I really like. So when it came to Age of Ultron's release, it had its world premiere at the Dolby Theatre in Hollywood on the 13th of April, 2015, and its European premiere at The View West End in London on the 21st of April. The UK got it on the 23rd of April on wide release, the US on the 1st of May in 3D and IMAX 3D. Age of Ultron is estimated to be the second most expensive film ever made, even more so than its sequels, both Infinity War and Endgame. According to a report, it's estimated to have a net budget of $365 million, the only movie with a net budget higher than this is Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides at $379 million. Age of Ultron would gross $459 million in the US and Canada and $943.8 million elsewhere, giving it a worldwide box office of $1.405 billion, slightly down on its predecessor and obviously it was slightly more expensive than its predecessor too. Critics were generally favourable, uh, but most noted that the movie seemed to not be an improvement on the Avengers, mainly due to its difference in tone, and that many felt that the movie was just overstuffed. And obviously, there are more characters in this movie than in the previous movie, and it is just a case of balancing as many of these characters as possible. I certainly agree that the Avengers in 2012 did that a lot better than Avengers Age of Ultron. But again, I feel like you don't come to Age of Ultron for that. You come to Age of Ultron for the horror. <laughs> and that's a really weird thing for me to say because I am not a fan of horror and I've always said this on this podcast, but I am a fan of monsters and the themes, the monster, like I say, the gods and monsters theme in this movie, it is really really fascinating if you look at it like that. Obviously this movie would have serious ramifications for pretty much all of the MCU going forward. Age of Ultron's battle in Sokovia would incite the Sokovia Records, the signing of which is a major plot point in Captain America's Civil War. I've already mentioned that uh, a couple of times. That's episode 73 of this podcast by the way. Indeed the relationship between Steve and Tony would continue to dissolve from Tony's creation of Ultron, through Civil War and into Infinity War, culminating in Endgame. Obviously, the Avengers sequels for this movie are Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. And as I keep hinting, I mean, 
they are going to be coming incredibly soon to this podcast. Right, let's move over to social media thoughts. So what I like to do is I like to find out what people think about the movies that I'm featuring. And the first people that I go to are the beloved patrons of this podcast. And we're going to start with Andy, as we tend to always do, because Andy always has thoughts. And Andy says... It never ceases to amaze me how they managed to cross over the insane mobile Ultron with the exploits of Stephen Peel. Oh, are we still talking about the Marvel Avengers? My mistake. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, it's just kind of wearing a bit thin now, Andy. You've already made this joke. How many more times can you make an Avengers spy series movie joke? I'm, I'm assuming you're going to make it two more times. But please know that it's just not funny. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I will continue. Andy continues. At first sight, Age of Ultron feels like an inconsequential sequel that doesn't do much to follow up with the movies that came before. The only dangling thread is the Hydra storyline that was introduced in Winter Soldier had most of its heavy lifting done in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series. However, without it, we may not have gotten WandaVision. It's a movie that feels too much like a sequel, but upon further views, it's actually pretty good. Doesn't suffer from some of the pacing issues of the original, and James Spader gets to torment Robert Downey Jr. again. Obligatory, less than zero reference accomplished. Solid sequel that just sets the table to the next phase to follow. And I don't know what less than zero is, but I'm just going to take it. And I apologise for not following through with your really, really funny Avengers, Steed and Peel and Ultron joke. It's just not funny. Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. Anyway, so I always like to give a little plug for the patrons who comment. So we need to plug Andy's podcast, Geek Salad. They are literally a one-stop shop for podcasting in general. But, you know, they cover pretty much everything. They do news, reviews. We also have a wonderful YouTube channel as well. Basically, anything to do with anything geek. So movies, music, TV, games, anything really is going to be covered on Geek Salad. So I will pop a link in the show notes to Geek Salad. Make sure that you take a listen. And we also have a patron comment from Brendan who says, They were never going to recreate the moment of seeing Marvel's super team come into its own in the 2012 film. But Age of Ultron is still a boldly ambitious juggling act of half a dozen in-motion character arcs, delightful superhero spectacle and great thematic swings. Not everything connects, but the stuff that lands leaves lasting impact for the rest of the MCU. And there are several seeds that this film plants which sprout quality fruit in later films. Age of Ultron is a messier and sadder victory than its predecessor, but that feels appropriate to Earth's mightiest heroes just before their bitter split in Civil War. And a massive thank you to Brendan. Brendan doesn't have a podcast, but I'm going to give him a bit of a shout out anyway because he's a really cool guy and, and he and I pretty much agree on everything, actually. Derek also posted a comment on Patreon and he says, While this is not a popular opinion, I do think Ultron is stronger than the first Avengers. It fleshes out the characters, the party scene and Hawkeye's house, while still being a ton of fun. The theme of creating the thing you are trying to destroy is great. And James Spader. And Derek is one of the hosts of The Midnight Myth. It's all about the history, mythology, philosophy and how those topics influence popular culture. As I said, it's hosted by Derek and also his amazing wife, Laurel. Please, please make sure you check out The Midnight Myth. It's awesome. We have Scott as well, and he says, 
After the triumph of his predecessor, most things would feel a bit like a letdown, but I found Age of Ultron to be a perfectly decent slice of superhero ass-kickery, with some real standout moments, both in character and action. Which would have got more Spader as Ultron? My viewing experience was also memorable as I went to a 3am screening, yes really, at the BFI IMAX in London, making it the only time I've gone into a screening in the dark and walked out with it light outside, and I stayed awake through the whole film. And Scott, along with Kevin Chris, hosts Monkey See, Monkey Review. Three friends basically waxing lyrical about film and the experiences of watching film. Go have a listen to Monkey See, Monkey Review. I guarantee you won't regret it. And the final patron comment comes from Mark and he says, Ultron was never going to be a popular one movie and done character. A super strong, ultimately smart machine that lasts two and a half hours in the film almost seems a waste of one of the best baddies in Marvel history. The film is understated as it introduces key characters and plot lines that we're still dealing with six years and countless films on. Stand out here for me is Andy Serkis as Claw. Is he ever anything other than entertaining? And Mark uh, hosts 100 Things We Learn From Film with his co-host John, and they genuinely aim to find 100 brand new facts from each film they see. They're hilarious, the facts are ace, so listen to that podcast. And... Obviously, links for all of the podcasts that I featured will be in the show notes. And obviously, as I said, please make sure that you listen to these excellent podcasts. Moving over to Twitter, we start with Sam at Movie Reviews in 20Qs. And he says, Meh, lacked the fun of the first one. Felt like a ton of shoehorn studio interference, which was confirmed. And aside from a few cool scenes, there was nothing substantial. WandaVision almost retconned it into a good movie, but I'd probably have it in my bottom three MCU films. At Sean Geek Podcast said, Worth a romp for some of the greatest MCU moments, but the film suffers here and there and leads to a rather disjointed affair. This movie could have used some polish. At Defining Disney said, Felt like it wasted a lot of Marvel lore, Ultron, to keep up the hype and trashed a lot of the character building for our OG6. But it gave us Scarlet Witch and Vision and laid groundwork for some very interesting plots in the future. So it's a mixed bag for us overall. At DW Lundberg said, In many ways, justly maligned for its narrative shortcuts, it actually makes solid points about the toll that being a superhero takes on the characters. Natasha and Bruce connect because of the manipulation done to their bodies. And it's more interesting visually than Avengers 1. We have Peter Briggs, the writer of Hellboy at the Peter Briggs, who says... Not as bad as everybody makes out. Many solid scenes. The movie is scuppered by Ultron's snarky banter, which never stops. When you look at Civil War, then Ultron, you can see that you can push goofy comedy just a tad too much. Worth it for Paul Bettany, wonderful as Vision. At Beaver Does said, This is the last movie in Marvel's arsenal to truly suffer from the sophomore slump. The villain being wisecracking doesn't fit in with the look of the character. It's not a bad movie, but just filled with a lot of head-scratching choices. Movies After Work podcast at Movies Work said, While not the strongest in the franchise, it offers up lots of character fun that makes the journey worth it. At Patrick Waggett, who is one of the hosts of the Rewind movie cast, actually worked on the set of Age of Ultron. So he gave me a rather lengthy comment via DM, but it's really fascinating. So here's what Patrick had to say. He says, I jogged alongside Jeremy Renner from set back to unit base. Only about one minute, but he was a lot fitter than me because he told me to and he didn't want to get in the buggy. Spader asked me to get videos on Usain Bolt for him to watch as he wanted to base Ultron's movement on Bolt, long and powerful. 
I had to greet Hemsworth on the underwater stage at Pinewood to take him for a scene. So when his car pulled up, I introduced myself and he patted me, twatted me on the back, which took the wind out of me and said, don't worry, I know who you are, mate. He clearly didn't and was being nice and obviously told Patrick will meet you there, but it was cool and he was great. Ruffalo would always address me as young man and during motion capture, I was asked to be an eyeline for him, firing a gun at him while he got angry and threw a car at me, which was a cushion with mocap markers on it. There was something really thrilling about that. In the original iteration of the script that I read in my first week, when Iron Man and Ultron have their standoff and dialogue before the finale kicks off, Ultron drove a pole or something through Iron Man and the way Whedon wrote it I'll never forget. And the effing Hulk burst out of the iron suit and had the Hulk fight Ultron to begin with. It was awesome reading that, but of course it changed. The stuff in Africa where they crash into the shopping mall was shot in Wembley, as was the majority of Sokovia, the bridge, the church, etc. John Mahaffey, second unit director, was such a cool, nice guy and loved working with him. I had to shoot an element of Black Widow, stunt double for the super slow-mo Avengers Assemble shot at the beginning, where they all line up, and I presented to him what we had, as the double and I came up with rolls and jumps and various kicks, and he said, good job, we got it. All in all, an enjoyable job. The Stark Tower set was effing ace. <laughs> and that is really really cool really super cool that you worked on this movie patrick at shoot the flick said i definitely think they could get more out of the ultron character because he's such a great villain in the comics who knows though he could always come back at chance with more five said this is one of my least favorite marvel movies it's not a bad movie just not a great one part of the issue is ultron two hours isn't enough for such a complex baddie Part of it is that in introducing new plots, there were places the movie dragged. It could have been so much more. And finally, at need underscore three underscore mugs replied, and you also have to consider the fact that Ultron was originally a Pym creation, not Tony's. And we don't have any comments on Instagram or Facebook this time round, but a huge amount of comments actually for Age of Ultron, way more than we got for the original Avengers movie. Um, so clearly this is a divisive movie and clearly this is a movie that some people really like uh, and some people really don't. Um, but regardless, a massive thank you to everyone who got involved with the comments on this episode, especially Patrick, who worked on the movie. What does it mean to be human? It's one of the questions that Age of Ultron asks. And Age of Ultron has so many great things going on in this movie. It has some great scenes, the party scene where everyone tries to lift Thor's hammer. Genuinely fun, upbeat moment just before chaos strikes. And a great James Spader performance as Ultron. And despite only having eight minutes of screen time, I was sold on Vision immediately. Something Vision says summarises my thoughts on Age of Ultron, actually. He says, humans are odd. They think order and chaos are somehow opposites and try to control what won't be. But there is grace in their failings. I think you missed that. There is grace in Age of Ultron, despite its failings. It sees Ultron as chaos and Tony as order, but really it's the opposite. Humans are odd. We don't have the logical mind, logical mind of a synthesoid to truly see it. But I think a lot of people miss the grace in Age of Ultron. No, it's not perfect. It has issues, especially relating to Natasha. But as a horror-adjacent superhero movie about the mistakes we make in the chase of a perfect world, it's a really poignant movie and really interesting and at times quite scary, actually. Um, 
Looking back on Age of Ultron, and especially in the light of WandaVision, which is an episode that I'm going to be putting out shortly, exclusive for patrons, I think it's really clear that Joss Whedon had, excuse the pun, a vision for this movie. It didn't really pan out, I think, the way that he intended it to, but there really is something interesting in Age of Ultron. And I really implore you, actually, if like me, it's a movie that you generally thought, well, you know, it's not the greatest Avengers movie. Give it another go. Have a look at the themes, especially the gods and monsters theme. And maybe you'll see what I see in it, because I really do see a spark of something. It's tiny. It's not quite formed. It's not like a brilliant, bright diamond. It's a tiny spark, but it is there. And it is actually quite fascinating. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Avengers Age of Ultron. If you did enjoy this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by leaving a rating or review on a podcast app of choice. Something like Apple Podcasts would be awesome. You can retweet or like posts on social media. That always helps as well. Or you can simply just tell your friends and family about this awesome podcast that you've just started listening to. It's, that's my podcast, by the way. And if you did specifically like this episode on Avengers Age of Ultron, you might also like one of the following episodes that I've done. I'm not going to recommend every single comic book movie that I've ever covered, but I am going to recommend the following. I'm going to recommend episode 53, Serenity. It is another Joss Whedon movie. It is a very, very fun movie. It's based, obviously, on his one-season TV show, Firefly. If you haven't seen Firefly, I would absolutely recommend you see Firefly because it's awesome. And Serenity is a really special movie because the fans of Firefly really did help get Serenity made in the first place. Episode 68, Black Panther, because, I mean, it's an incredible movie for a start. I covered Black Panther, I think, about a month after Chadwick Boseman's death. It wasn't my intention to do it then. I actually had the episode planned for the first week in September of last year and obviously Chadwick passed away the last week of August and so I moved it out of the schedule and I was like I can't cover this movie so close to his death because his death really did affect me, it really upset me that a man who was so talented and so brilliant could basically just be taken in the prime of his life and so I waited for a little bit and then I covered Black Panther, it's still a very raw and emotional episode, but it's the one that I get the most positive comments from, even though I get quite upset in this episode. And I'm laughing about it now, and it's ridiculous. But I kept all of that emotion in because I kind of felt at the time, well, if you can't show emotion, then what's the point? So, you know, you should just be able to show emotion, even if you've got a podcast. No one wants to listen to some monotone voice just reading off a script. You know, if you're happy about something, then be happy. And if you're sad about something, then be sad. I was really sad talking about Chadwick Boseman in Black Panther. It's not a completely sad episode, by the way. I'm not like crying the whole thing. It is an interesting episode, I think. But yeah, talking about him specifically. But obviously, it's a fantastic movie. And it's part of the MCU. Also part of the MCU episodes 71, 72 and 73, 
They are on the three Captain America movies. I did those last December. Obviously, episode 71 is Captain America the First Avenger, 72 Captain America the Winter Soldier, 73 Captain America Civil War. Obviously, the events in Civil War are very pertinent to this particular movie. So if I was going to recommend one of those, I'd obviously recommend Civil War. And the previous episode, episode 97, The Avengers, because that sets up a lot of this story a lot of how Joss Whedon got involved with the project, a lot of the background of the Avengers, all of the stuff that I really didn't have time to talk about in this episode. Yeah, so give me feedback on my episode recommendation. Let me know if you think I got it right, which obviously I clearly did. The next episode is, of course, we're going to be moving on to the Russo brothers taking over the mantle of the Avengers franchise. And we're also going to be going into what many see as the high point of the series, Avengers Infinity War that is episode 99 of this podcast so I mean you get one guess what <laughs> episode 100 is going to be I have 14,605 possible outcomes for Avengers Infinity War let's see if I can manage to get the winning one you can follow me on Twitter Facebook Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama you can sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash Verbal Diorama as I've mentioned in this episode, a special Patreon exclusive episode on WandaVision will be available for patrons very soon. There is also a brand new Patreon tier called Duke Kaboom, and that is a tiny little $1 slash £1 tier, literally for patrons who don't really want a lot of perks, but they just want to show a little bit of support and to have essentially a cameo in the Verbal Diorama patron. A massive thank you, as always, to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, and a special thank you to a brand new patron. Her name is Lisa. She has literally just joined up. Uh, a massive, huge welcome to Lisa. Obviously, you can expect to mention each episode because I really genuinely am this grateful to everyone who signs up as a patron. So a huge thank you to all of the patrons and to Lisa for signing up. And what? You didn't see that coming? I have a merch store, teespring.com slash stores slash verbal diorama. If you want to buy mugs and totes and stuff, you can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also pop over to the website verbaldiorama.com. And you can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can buy issues of the magazine. You can check out articles that I write. And you can support independent British publications, which everyone wants to do. And finally... On lifting Mjolnir, that's not a question I need answered. Bye.